Hello, this is Deb from Deb Zadadocho, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. Today I'm speaking to Bruce Fenton. Bruce Fenton looks for evidence of alien technologies by doing geological and genomic SETI. He has spoken on the Black Vault about tektites, glass anomalies on our planet that may indicate interstellar debris. Bruce is also the author of Exogenesis, Hybrid Humans, A Scientific History of Extraterrestrial Genetic Manipulation. He's also presented a hypothesis about humanity's evolutionary history that is intriguing. If you're also interested in learning more about his research, his research is available on the internet um, and he has a sub stack. So thank you for coming and joining me today. I would love to thank you very much. I want to introduce the whole world to what you're talking about. It's very interesting stuff. And I love the fact that you do some intense scientific based research. So yeah, thank you, Deb. I appreciate the introduction. And yeah, I, I do love to um, explore a blend of uh, sort of fairly rigorous scientific, you know, looking at scientific studies, you know, what I suppose we'd call literature review, mainly, you know, looking for other people's scientific research to find anomalies you know relevant to the topics that we're interested in you know whether that's aliens ufos consciousness you know that I, I believe there's great value in the existing body of academic research that's often uh, not well exploited by people that have an interest in these topics you know there's generally a focus on on anecdote more so than on the research and you know i hope to rebalance that a bit i also am interested in anecdotes and in you know metaphysics and topics that aren't uh, well studied by academia so i'd say that my position is uh, somewhere in the middle you know looking at both sides um you know one of the more intriguing things is that you're looking at evidence that already exists on our planet of um possible mm -hmm. involvement with extraterrestrials um, and I was wondering if you had worked with Avi Loeb on this idea. Yeah, no, that's a, a fair question because obviously there's overlaps. You know, I do talk about interstellar objects and material that I believe are from, or I argue, are from an interstellar object, whether natural or unnatural. My preference is, you know, a natural, an artificial object. Uh, but even if it was shown to be natural, but from beyond our solar system, of course, that would still be an amazing discovery. So I've had somebody on my behalf has reached out and asked Avi about my work. And uh, that was quite interesting to kind of see that he he replied on a podcast, I think it was Theory of Everything, and kind of said that, you know, really that, yes, there was a validity to the suggestion that tektites could be materials from interstellar objects. I don't think he was familiar with the paper I'd put out there because he didn't detail it in any sense. I, I'm just guessing between the lines that he probably hadn't read it, but he did suggest there was validity to the idea and that he would be interested to see when they collect debris from one of the, uh, the, the currently uh, understood recent interstellar objects, you know, whether or not those might be tektite-like pieces said of course that would further strengthen the idea that um that i'm putting out there so i don't think he was that intimately familiar but it was interesting to have him comment at all on it and of course to suggest that there was validity because as he pointed out it is a mystery you know nobody really knows the backstory of these texts we'll go a bit more into that but it's uh yeah it's a kind of a, a 130 plus year long mystery as to the exact formation processes involved. So there's a, certainly a, uh, an open door to the potential of them being interstellar. 
Okay, so I'm actually really hoping that you'll join that project, of course, because I think you will uh, help him avoid going backwards to do something that you've already been working on. Um, mm. But to explain to listeners who don't know what tektites are and what your theory is, can you please summarize that for people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so tektites are a, a type of glass, first of all. So you've got a few categories of glass because you've got artificial glasses that man makes you know everyone's familiar with you know which is essentially compounds mainly silica being heated in crucibles that they boil off various volatile chemicals we mix them and then we we cool them rapidly it's called quenching and you end up with these you know very uh, useful types of glass that we make all kinds of things with um, but conversely there's natural glasses there's uh, lightning induced glass called fulgurite which is where lightning strikes sand you get these very um, kind of jagged pieces of glassy material. There's volcanic glass, which of course forms in volcanic calderas, a somewhat similar process to artificial glass. You know, you're heating the material over a long period of time, uh, volatiles bubbling off, uh, well mixed. And so they're, they're quite similar to artificial glasses. Obviously there's important differences. They're not quite the same. And then you've got impact glass, which is different again, because in, in those instances, you've got a, a very short lived high energy event forms the glass so what you find with these is that they have a lot of bubbles trapped in them it's called like very foamy materials so there's a lot of bubbles there's also poor mixing of the components because there isn't time for that mixing to occur so it's called heterogeneous rather than uh, homogeneous materials so that's where it's, the chemicals are distributed unequally uh, and these also they tend to include a piece of organic material you know soil and part melt pieces of stone that didn't melt at the impact site, right? So they're, they're very distinctive to volcanic glasses and artificial glasses, um, as is also um, nuclear blast glass. Again, it's a man-made glass, but a short-lived high energy event. So you get foamy glass, poorly mixed, you know, very, very similar to impact glass. And then the other type, the more mysterious type is tektites, because to date, the the popular, I would say it's total sense, but the popular hypothesis say that's the most popular hypothesis is that these are formed in impact events, and yet they are unlike glasses from established crater sites, right? Where we have this, as we discussed, foamy glasses, poorly mixed, all these other aspects. The glass that um, that we refer to as tektites instead is very well chemically mixed. It, it lacks almost any water content, which is very strange because all the other glasses have water content. Uh, on top of that, it is also um, yeah, extremely fine, well fine. So that means that it's been, chemicals have been bubbled off in what seems to be an extended heating process, like the volcanic glass, like the artificial glass. So you would you would tend to bunch it with those two, and yet it's currently being bunched with impact glasses. So there's a mystery there. And a lot of scientists over the last 130 years have tried to tackle this, tried to understand how do you end up with an impact glass that resembles volcanic and artificial glasses that have been fined and mixed over you know hours normally if not days weeks whatever to come up with these very high quality well mixed glasses so there's something very different here and strange and it's it's exceedingly difficult to see how an impact event can give you this type of glass and that's why it's um, persisted as a mystery for 130 years despite top minds in you know geology chemistry astrophysics all kinds of people have thrown their minds at this topic and to date it's considered you know unresolved um, so i guess hopefully it gives people some idea i mean actually just very quickly the first person to write a technical document about them in the west was actually um 
uh, sorry, went blank for a second. Um, I'm sorry, the, the guy who came up with the theory of evolution. Sorry, you know, your mental blip for a second. Darwin? Darwin, thank you. Yeah, sorry, mental break there. Yeah, sorry, Darwin was the first person to to write a technical paper on this. That's kind of interesting as well that, you know, someone of his stature took an interest in the topic after being given a sample whilst he was doing his travels around the world. So it's, it's kind of, yeah, I think that's kind of a cool start to the story in a way. Um, since then, there's been, you know, hundreds of papers have been read on the topic. All kinds of hypotheses have been offered as glass from the moon, pieces that broke off from volcanic, you know, lumps on the moon that were knocked out into space and arrived here. Uh, there's been even theories of kind of antimatter events, all kinds of stuff over the years. So yeah, definitely very intriguing. I think it's great that two things that you're looking at stem from Darwin in a way. <laughs> That's amazing. What an amazing coincidence. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was kind of funny, you know, because you've got the overlap of the evolutionary side of this topic, which we get to. And of course, yes, this kind of geological side. And then you've got Darwin mixed right in yeah. on both of them. If that's not sort of a, I don't know, a cosmic joke of some kind, I, I'm not sure. You're following some big footsteps. So um, the tektite theory that you're going with, it seems, or the hypothesis is that these are interstellar. Um, so um, obviously you said a lot of people have been trying to solve this mystery, but that is where you landed with it. So what do you think indicates that it's interstellar? Sure. Yeah. So once you look closer at all of the different factors involved in its distribution and its composition, uh, one of the first things you notice is that particularly for the Australasian tektite strewn field, is that it is just enormous. I mean, this is a, a debris field that stretches from China all the way down to Antarctica, something like 12,000 kilometers in length. Uh, and, and out to the sides, it's it, to Madagascar in the west and out beyond, well beyond Papua out in the east. Um, so, I mean, it's enormous. It covers something like 20% of the Earth's surface. Now, that's maybe may difficult to conceive of, but if we think of it, I mean, it's just an, an astonishingly large debris field. Now, this is one of the reasons why, at this point, as far as I can see, nobody in academia really suggests this is a, a normal impact event, because if you have uh, an understood kind of a, a typical asteroid impact, material can be thrown around about 400 kilometers by the normal mechanisms of it, you know, traveling through the air and meeting resistance as the compressed air ahead of it, you know, obviously slowing down the materials plus gravity, uh, that there is a, a limit around 400 kilometers before all of the debris, other than, you know, dust, will have fallen, right? So when you look at this enormous debris field, the only one way to kind of explain it is to say that at least some great proportion of this material was traveling outside of the atmosphere. Right, and that's that's pretty well accepted. That's not unique to my thinking. So then you have to come up with novel mechanisms for this material to have traveled from the hypothetical initial event, which is believed to be either in Indochina or from my perspective, above Indochina. And I'm not the only person to suggest that. I think it's up in space. Others suggest maybe as a as an object fragmenting in the atmosphere, I think above the atmosphere, but essentially you're looking at that area as ground zero. So the material has to have traveled all the way from there down to Antarctica. Now, either it has in, there's been an impact event, which is so powerful you know, on the scale of say the Chicxulub impact, you know, with something like that, the dinosaur killing comet. Now, if you have something on that scale, 
that can throw material out into space. It's calculated that did throw rocks, you know, out into our solar system because that was an enormous object, something like I think five kilometers across, or you know, it's enormous. Impacts like that, yet yeah, they certainly can do that. At least you know the math seems to stack up. But they also leave enormous craters. So you've got a crater about a hundred and something kilometers across at Chicxulub, which is even though it's 65 million years old, it's quite easily detectable on, you know, all of our satellite systems. They've mapped it even under the sea. You can see the, the, the formation of this impact site, you know, despite weathering and being covered. So we have the technology to pick these up. So now if you were looking for something of that scale in Southeast Asia, that should be showing up on our satellite mapping. You should see this anomaly, an enormous anomaly. Now that, that hasn't turned up. So that's a problem. So it means that if you haven't got something on that scale, then you need other novel mechanisms to explain this. One of them that I've seen is the idea that somehow the atmosphere was displaced over a quite a vast area as this impactor came in and it pushed all of the atmosphere out of the way and that this material is traveling up through the vacuum hole in the atmosphere behind it and then out into space, allowing it to travel further than it would normally. And then it then travels up and is then coming back down along this extended field. Well, that in principle, first of all, there's a couple of issues. First of all, you've got to show some evidence that this enormous vacuum hole happened, which would have killed you know, an immense amount of life, uh, both plant and animal life over a huge region. Never mind the fact that we're not seeing this crater, right? Which we should see this, we should still see a large crater for this. Uh, but on top of that, the angles at which the debris go up should mean you'd see a quite a steep incline and then, a, you know, a steep kind of uh, return. Instead, what you see is this distribution all the way along this field going down from Southeast Asia down to Australia. So clearly some of these angles would have to be completely very obtuse and very long angles. In other words, they actually has to end up in orbit. And as a number of the NASA engineers who've been involved in this have said, this, this doesn't stack up. Is they can't see how material can travel out at this steep angle, even in this hypothetical scenario. And then it ends up on an orbital path so that this does not fit the maths as they understand. And again, deferring to rocket scientists who work on these problems uh, and they cannot see this. What they, what they can see in the data is clear evidence that this material is traveling along orbital paths which is in line with a fragmenting satellite, right? So they suggested uh, a natural satellite of some sort breaking up in orbit and the pieces then skipping along the edge of the atmosphere and some of them coming down at very gentle angles, allowing secondary melting. And you end up with these very distinctive shapes called button tectites. And you can see the front of them looks like the nose cone of a rocket or, you know, the front of a bullet. And that's where a sphere, a cold, hard sphere of glass has returned at these shallow angles and has had time to gradually melt. The material is run backwards and you can see the back half of the sphere has been partly covered by this melting material as it's aerodynamically reshaped. And these are rare, distinctive types of tectite found across southern Australia and also in parts of Java, nowhere else, even though this is in a vast strewn field, they're only found across Southern Australia and Java. Everywhere else, the tech type material is different, is in what's called splash forms, uh, teardrop shapes, spheres, dumbbells, discs, um, you know, a few other shapes, which are typical of materials traveling within the atmosphere whilst they're hot, and you get these kind of rotational, you know, rotational forms. So if a liquid is hot and it's rotating and traveling through air, you end up with these distinctive shapes, like I say, like teardrops, okay. dumbbells, discs, right? So there's different types, but these buttons, they tell us 
that at least a portion of this material is traveling along orbital paths, skipping along the edge of the atmosphere, and is then you know, re-entering in the way that a deteriorating orbital path would. So there's a, a big kind of arrow pointing towards the idea that this is a, a satellite of some sort that's breaking up. And that okay. fits with other, you know, I'll let you come back in. I'll just say it fits with other evidence in Indochina suggesting that we had aerial bursts where large pieces of debris came in, exploded high in the atmosphere, and that those cause kind of plasma vortex storms and they melt the surface below. They suck material up. Uh, they also melt the surface. And you end up with another type of tectite called muongnong layered tectite. And these are kind of sheets of multi-layered tectite. Some of them are twisted and folded. And you can tell that they've been whipped around by incredible forces and you know, incredible wind speeds. Today, we see the same kind of uh, phenomena down in Chile, in the Atacama Desert, which has recently been identified as the signature of a fragmenting comet causing aerial burst. And we see the same folding of layered glass. So it absolutely is the fingerprints of a catastrophic kind of atmospheric explosive event uh, subsequent to fragmenting of an object. So I know it's probably a lot I'm packing quite quickly, but you, know, you have to pull me back onto one of those topics. But that's kind of why at first we'd say that it's something that's from space. And then I would say, you know, why am I saying interstellar? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. Because first of all, the composition of the glass contains too much silica. It's about 70% or more silica for any known asteroids or comets in our solar system. Uh, on top of that, some of the isotopic ratios are suggestive of being from beyond our solar system. Uh, we don't know of an object that, that is like that. So you would infer straight away that, well, if it's not of a type that we see in our solar system, then it should be extrasolar system. You know, it's got to be something interstellar. Um, and also to be captured in that way, something of that large is very unusual. So there's other strange aspects to this, you know, which is why the NASA guys, when they were calculating this, they they never really posited an interstellar origin. They talked about lunar volcanism because, as they point out, it's, it's problematic to suggest an object like that could come in from deep space and firstly be captured and secondly end up exploding in orbit because you've got to explain both of those, which are both unlikely to happen. Well, I have about five questions from that. <laughs> so yeah, here we go. You ready? Yeah. The first question sure. is, have scientists ever considered the oceans themselves to be large craters? Uh, not to my knowledge, no. I know, of course, we look at the moon and we look at those enormous craters that, you know, could some of our, at least some parts of our, ocean bed be the results of very large impacts you know early on in the sort of the heavy bombardment period I, I don't really see why not i mean obviously the earth was getting absolutely pummeled so uh, it would seem reasonable but not not that i know of really my answer but yeah it seems like it's a reasonable thing to ask yeah that's definitely one that next time you ask a scientist about this i would like to know that answer if they're yeah. taking account that the oceans are in fact large mm -hmm. craters <laughs> so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um the next question I have is, what do you think that satellite would be? Right, because of, uh, there's a couple of things here. Firstly, I mean, this is going just purely on this data that we discussed, that you know, if an object comes in from interstellar space, it should be traveling at some absolutely incredible speeds. I mean, as Abby Loeb has kind of discussed in his work, you one of the ways to identify an interstellar object is by the fact that they are moving faster than objects that have been captured by our sun. Now, 
those objects in our solar system are already traveling at you know immense speeds you know as we understand you know, that's why even fairly small asteroids can pack you know an enormous punch is because of the unbelievable velocity at which they're moving right so if you if you factor in that something should be going even faster than that the chances that it will come in from space and also happen to go you know close to the earth near enough to be affected by our gravitational pull but also somehow be captured and become a moon rather than either uh, being accelerated past or just impacting it's a very unlikely scenario for it to somehow end up as a moon and that was one of the issues the kind of the nasa guys when they were looking at this they they couldn't really see how you resolve that with natural objects right now the other thing is of course if you have somehow captured this object and the gravity you know has somehow allowed it to become a moon as unlikely as that would seem you then have this issue that the glass has been created in what seems to be you know a very high energy event somewhere around 2500 degrees right so you've about half at least around that so about which is about half the temperature of the of the heliosphere so i mean you've got the, the the edges of the sun around that twice that temperature so it's unbelievable heat and then you've got to think so this object has been melted to a, a fine homogeneous glass in what would normally be a long heating process yeah and then these droplets of liquid glass have frozen to spheres in the vacuum of space and, and we know from the chemical analysis that they formed in vacuum so it fits with them forming in space and the lack of water content i touched on earlier that is a characteristic of being in space so so they know that this appears to have formed in space now what would cause a natural satellite to go through a superheating you know extended superheating event whilst in orbit in the cold of space with no obvious mechanisms for this and then the glass comes in as these you know frozen droplets and is reheated in the atmosphere that's a big problem because someone might say well you know heating can occur as an object comes into the atmosphere you know it could break up and be heated in the atmosphere yes but it can't happen twice so if, if you've got it melted already and it's now being remelted by entry into the atmosphere this means that the glass is already formed in the heat and in, you know in space so it can't be from the re-entry because it's it's getting secondary melt from entering the atmosphere right so it has to have already formed in space and then come in and reheated so there's a big problem so what is the heat source for that first round of melting and that was the other issue the nasa team couldn't deduce you know a solution to and hence they went with this now rebutted volcanic glass from the moon theory which i can touch on but basically that has been debunked for a number of reasons um but they the only natural scenario was lunar volcanic glass being knocked by an asteroid knocked across to earth um and then somehow coming in which again there wasn't so many problems with that in the end it collapsed partly because the lunar material wasn't uh chemically um right for forming these tectites but there's other problems with it so eventually they abandoned that idea but the, the one idea they didn't ever tackle was the possibility that we're dealing with something that is not natural right now i'm not going to fight you on that one because that's the part that's most intriguing to me of course but i i do have you know have they considered a possible collision in space as a possible cause yeah, no, I've, I've pondered that. But then it's still you have, a, first of all, you've got, 
now you know of course you're you're adding entities in the way that Occam's razor would have promises so it doesn't mean it's impossible but we've got now we have to say an object that's an unlikely object with strange composition has somehow unlikely you know ended up in orbit and now with the vastness of space a second object has now collided with our unlikely moon and, and fragmented it so i'm not saying it's impossible but now the second problem you have is that again is a short high energy event right mm -hmm. so why don't we end up with just normal foamy melt glass and debris why do we end up with this homogeneous fine glass that resembles volcanic and artificial glass so and that, that's the other problem with this is that no matter which way they look at it they have this issue of well we don't really understand how this is you know able to break understood laws for liquids and particularly for bubbles moving in liquids we've got moses moses law um and that was one of the big issues that the lunar guys had with the terrestrial impact people they said well look, you've got to be able to explain the actual formation of this kind of fine homogeneous glass in your hypothesis no matter what else you can explain you have to be able to tell us how does it end up like this you know what is the extended heating that that allows this glass to form now i can't see that in any impact would do that so again you're back to the similar idea with the problems with the terrestrial asteroid impact that it's a short you know a high energy event yes it will melt the material you'll certainly have some melt glass but it shouldn't be well mixed and it shouldn't be fine it shouldn't look anything like volcanic glass you know That's i have a to say odd problem yeah i think one of the another odd problem is that things like that just haven't happened in a while we had some swipes we've had some small mm -hmm. objects but it is a little bit amazing to me and i don't want to like jinx us mm -hmm. of course how rarely we have you know swipes you know i think the last one was in the 1800s it was pretty big <laughs> it was mm -hmm. knocked down quite a lot but um the fact that we aren't getting hit but the moon continues to get pummeled you know the moon's like our mm -hmm. our little guard out there i think that is a peculiar mystery in and of itself you hear occasionally yeah. like something crashing through a roof that's like a baseball size but we're pretty lucky <laughs> because I think the moon may have actually been created by an impact. That's a theory that's out there also, um, that the moon broke away from our planet after an impact. Um, so yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of mystery when it comes to the, I wish we knew. <laughs> you know? Yeah, the moon is um, mysterious in itself, yeah. Right. So one thing that you mentioned kind of ties into um, your other hypothesis that I wanted to get into. You mentioned one of the areas that this object seemed to have um, dropped its tectites um, or caused the formation of tectite. And it was about China, Indonesia, right? So a lot of people think that our ancestors originated in Africa, but mm -hmm. other people are now going towards Asia um, and think that there might be some origins there. And I know that you have some other opinions about our origins as well. Um, mm -hmm. It seems like the discovery of more and more of our fossil record has put a big question mark on us coming out of Africa. And yeah. it just seems like an interesting coincidence that this object may have had an impact in a place where people think we may have originated. So this will tie into your other <laughs> interests mm -hmm. if you want to elaborate on that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's an intriguing part of the story is that um, so this the dating of this tektite is 788,000 years ago by the most accurate dating analysis has been done as yet. You know, so they're, they're pretty confident it's it's almost bang on, you know, 788,000. Um, so what's going on around then? Well, there's a lot of interesting stuff. We know that that's around the time that at the genetic level, the uh, early archaic hominins are diverging to what will become the lineages leading to Neanderthals, Denisovans, and us, that they're very close to that period. Now, there's a very interesting little event that happens, actually, as well at the same time, because we know that uh, when this was going on in the sky and this debris was falling, that a group of hominins must have seen this, and they made their way to a, like a what would have been a burned-out clearing from, I would suggest, from one of the aerial burst events, because they would have seen these. these like nuclear bombs going off in the sky. And that they went into a clearing and encountered this glass, this black, glass in this clearing. Now, does that sound like anything you've ever seen? A group of hominins walk into a clearing, they see a mysterious black glass yes. um, right at the beginning of the changes that will lead to Homo sapiens. I believe there was um, a movie that started that I way. There was a movie like that. Yeah. And we <laughs> yeah, know so this happened models. because... Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. It, this happened at a site called Bose in China. And we know because we find the stone tools, the weapons that they made on site, which again is an interesting overlap because of course, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the hominins encountered the black glass and they almost immediately they make weapons at the site. And, and that's what we find at Bose archaeological site, find that these stone axe heads are made uh, in the same time, they're in the same layer as the tech sites. And it's suspected that they actually retrieved rocks that had been exposed by the explosive events you know that led to the tectites and that therefore they you know kind of been drawn to that site that then made weapons on site and would have encountered this black glass it's all in the same archaeological layer and i just thought isn't that amazing you know just to have that overlap between you know reality and um, fiction and so profoundly especially when you factor in you know my other hypothesis that this is material from an ai craft which 2001 was suggesting these were um, essentially bracewell sentinel probes, a kind of AI representing an extraterrestrial civilization that they've left these sentinels on Earth. So, you know, the, the overlaps for me, I found that quite astonishing. Um, but then if you, if you go down to just, if people let that sort of sink in, I find that amazing anyway. But then if you move down to the southeast from China, down to Oceania, where I put a lot of what's going on kind of in that area, we, we know that hominins had moved down into Southeast Asia and across into island Indonesia at least a million years ago, a little bit over a million years ago. They've crossed into Flores, right? And you find Homo erectus bones and tools and also what seems to be ancestral Homo floresiensis, these hobbit people, they seem to be down there as well. Whether they're related to Homo erectus, nobody's quite sure. They may be a, a distinct lineage or they may be a dwarf form of Homo erectus. Either way, humans have crossed Wallace's line, and Wallace's line is, is, was always considered the kind of almost impenetrable geological barrier between Southeast Asia and Oceania because of the, the profoundly strong currents that move between these islands. So it wasn't thought that any mammals, other than a few, I think a few rats have managed to get across some bits of driftwood, you know, but no large mammals were supposed to be able to cross this. And now we know that actually hominins managed to do that, probably on reed rafts or, you know, some basic watercraft technologies. OK, now, if they've made it to Flores and down into the Indonesian island chain, 
it becomes extraordinarily simple to access the vast continent just to their south. And there's every reason to suspect that they would have done that within a few thousand years of reaching Flores. We don't see the evidence of that. Now, why not? Well, because the sea levels rose about 130 meters. So if you think about it, any of the entry sites or any coastal habitation sites across Australasia are under the sea. They're gone. But at this time, these events are happening. As I say, you know, there's every reason to suspect hominins are throughout island Southeast Asia and Oceania. We have this second part of my research, which is suggestive that this object being artificial, but not only that it's an artificial object, but it has some kind of link with the human changes, the changes of genome at the time, i.e. that we have an intervention event by the intelligence associated with the satellite. I believe that that is happening down in Oceania, where we see the debris. So we have this debris falls across uh, the southern, I say the buttons fall across the southern part of Australia. We have the debris spread all across Australasia and up into Indonesia. Could also be going on in Indonesia, you know, could be spread across a fair range of places. But uh, there's reasons to think that, yeah, that these early hominins are definitely throughout that region. And we know they're in China. We know that they're down in Ireland, Southeast Asia. So irrespective, across in East Asia and down to Oceania, um, we have these hominins moving around. Now, what we see at that time is a number of really intriguing changes in the genome. And in terms of the physical expression of these, it's been well known for decades that around about 800,000 years ago, approximately, there is a sudden acceleration in the brain size, the average brain size of hominins, right? But it's it's not in line with body size increase, which had been in the past, you've seen brain size increase more or less in line with body size increase. So it's not that extraordinary, bigger head on a bigger body, right? But now you're getting a brain size increase that's out of proportion. And so this of course has to have a genetic component. You know, it's the expression of changes in the gene, right? So something has changed. Now we couldn't tell what that was in the past because we had only bones. You can just say something weird had happened. Some people thought maybe their diet had changed or, you know, maybe, I mean, I could theorize all kinds of ideas about, you know, hallucinogenics and, you know, all sorts of things, strange things. But the reality is now you can look in the genome and start to see what is associated with this new, more complex, larger brain that the archaic kind of really super, super early homo sapiens are inheriting, right? And what we find is that one of the most kind of, I guess, glaring things is the fusion event for chromosome two that occurs around then by the best calculator I've seen done by a biochemist suggests that right before the split between Neanderthals, Denisovans, and our most direct lineage, that you see this chromosomal fusion event. So up until that point, all hominins had 48 chromosomes, right? And now you have a hominin with 46 chromosomes. Well, that's kind of funny in a way because normally a chromosomal error is a problem, right? So if it's not a problem, at best, you might hope it's neutral, right? And in either of those scenarios, it would be quickly reabsorbed back into the population and be gone. See, either that individual would be unable to breed or it will breed with another, you know, a mate that has the normal number of chromosomes and it will be reabsorbed quickly into the background population, right? Even if it's over one or two generations.
yeah because it's only one person has this change but we don't see that instead we see this wild scenario where the entire populations of humans on the earth are replaced by those who have this chromosomal fusion what the hell is going on there right so that is a kind of a red flag and with the scientists that have looked at this they've said well there's probably three constraints that you need for that to happen that one of them is that this has to have occurred in multiple individuals. The second one is these individuals must be in an isolated interbreeding population for it to become a stable change. And third, it has to convey enormous evolutionary benefits. Right? Well, that sounds awfully like a lab setting. So <laughs> I have to ask because, you know, DJ's um, talk to us a lot about Bigfoot. Have you looked at the <laughs> gigant? I'm going to say this wrong. Hold on, Gigantopithecus. I'm, I'm familiar with Gigantopithecus, yeah, and the idea that possibly we have some kind of residual population of them living you yes. know, in the forest or something that has evolved from them. I mean, what they do tell us is that there certainly have been very large hominids. That lived on this planet you know so that right. it's not unreasonable to believe that very large hominids hominids can exist living in the woods somewhere right because we know okay. they have existed um oh no i'm sure they're there but <laughs> the, my mm -hmm. question was do you think since they were also in southeast asia and they were hanging out next to you know whatever our ancestors were at the time that they may have had the same impact because Bigfoot is described as being considerably more intelligent um, than how they describe a Gigantopithecus. I'm, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but um, do you think that if they were in the same area at the same time, that that would be explain some of the potential evolution of Bigfoot too? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky because, of course, we have not much to go on. I mean, there's been a couple of studies which have was one study that was done and I got some samples from what's called a wild woman of the woods. And, you know, her DNA did suggest that there was a population of archaic hominins that had survived, uh, that were least from before. This is a split from at least before 70,000 years ago. Uh, so earlier than the repopulating of Eurasia, which is generally dated somewhere 50 to 70,000 years ago, that there was another population, probably in the Caucasus and the forests there, that is distinct from the main populating event. Now, that DNA didn't suggest that they were, you know, a radically different kind of hominin, though, that they would have still been mm -hmm. uh, Homo sapiens, right? but just a, an unknown lineage of earlier kind of archaic Homo sapiens that lived in the forest. That, I think, is a totally reasonable opposition with DNA support. Um, when we get to the others, I mean, we, all we have to go on really is descriptives, isn't it? You know, So could there be another kind of being that had been modified, which is out there that we don't know about? Or could there be an interbreeding between, say, um, you know, an early hominin like a the ancestor of homo sapiens and neanderthals say so let's say if there's around 700,000 years ago so one of these beings that's got some of these changes fusing chromosome 2 um other genes i'm referred to but strange genes that appeared 
uh, changes in the non-coding DNA that we see. So let's say that there's been a mixing event between one of these and a related hominin, not, or a hominid perhaps, that is larger and looks more like what we see as Bigfoot, and then it conveys some of that intelligence across into that group. I mean, yes. I mean, we know there was a lot of different hominins and hominids around at that time. In fact, and nobody we, knows how No, there's a lot. So we don't I know, know and there's still DNA indications in some um, people that they haven't found all of those missing links. Um, I believe no. um, people mm. who are indigenous to Australia um, in some parts of Australia, they have found that they just haven't solved what, where their DNA completely came from. They haven't found those missing links. Um, and I think, mm -hmm. you know, for me, one of the things that intrigues me is that we just ignore the fact that there were so many different hominids. Like, I can't mm -hmm. believe we just ignored that. <laughs> like, I'm actually um, considerably more Neanderthal than most of the population, apparently. Um, mm. And I, I wonder what that means about me, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, there's a couple of strange things. I mean, so what they refer to as ghost populations, right? So so when you find um, DNA traces of a population for which no fossil evidence exists, so these are referred to as ghost populations, right? So we know now that there's at least, from my understanding, something like five, six ghost populations that have been identified of different kinds of what they see as different kinds of hominins i mean there, there's other modern human ghost populations as well we don't know you know but we know what species they were but we don't know the fossils from that group because they're, they're divergent modern humans but what we have what more interesting is all these other kind of hominin types that are ghost populations um in the uh, people of papua and northern australia particularly yeah we see up to i think it's now about three different types of earlier kind of archaic hominin lineage that have been kind of they've been categorized together as different kinds of denisovans but i think that's an unfair categorization because it say for one example two of these different lineages were distinct from each other for at least 300,000 years well that's a massive gap because we would we wouldn't consider um the say neanderthals are not considered to be part of you know, the, the modern human group and so once you get to like 300,000 year gap, normally you would say, okay, this is a different population. So should we really be calling them Denisovans? Probably not. So you have some Denisovan DNA and DNA from two other groups that have been bundled with Denisovans, but they, they really are different. So you've got in one population of modern humans, also Neanderthal DNA in these people. So you've got Neanderthal DNA and perhaps three different, you know, other types in Denisovans and two others all all within that population and of course we don't yet know if they haven't got lineages of other people and I think that they will have because you know the, the the more we look into it the more we're going to find I think that particularly the people of Papua and the surrounds have got DNA from multiple lineages and I'll, t I'll tell you why I suspect that uh, it's because if, if you look at language distribution around the world for different languages and language groups it's like 40 percent of all the languages on earth are in Papua it's a bit weird, isn't it? So you've got this one island, and yet it's got 40% of the different languages. And, and many of these are kind of uh, uh, isolated languages. They're not related to any other languages in the world, let alone on the island. And, you know, they're not related to any other languages. Now, that's strange. So you've got an island where you have multiple languages that are not related to each other, right? And then you're seeing that you've got lineages of DNA from different hominins, right? Why would that happen? Well, I'll tell you why. 
Because we know that around about 70,000 years ago, there was the Lake Toba supervolcano event, right, in Indonesia. Now, that caused a kind of apocalyptic effects with a, what would be like a nuclear winter type effects sweeping around the northern hemisphere, lowering temperatures, uh, causing acid rain, you know, affecting plant growth. I'm not saying it was absolutely unsurvivable, but it was a horrific event. And most humans would be trying to exit to better climes. Now, where can you go? You can go into Africa by crossing the Babel Mandab, most likely, because that will take you down into South Africa. So you cross from Western Eurasia into South Africa. You'll be safe there. And conversely, at the other end of Eurasia, you can move down into through Southeast Asia. Well, you're not like near the volcano because you're probably dead. Right. But you can move down through Indonesia and down into Oceania. Right. So this is a contraction of populations, right? They are now fleeing a climate apocalypse. And so a lot of them are going to end up right there on the northern coasts of Australia and Papua. And we further know that this happened because when they looked at the DNA of, of Aboriginal people across Oceania, they found an enormous deep divide in the DNA between the people of the north and Papua and the, the people in the south. They said the only explanation for that they can understand of is, a, is an interbreeding taboo. So in other words, the people in the other part said, we don't consider these to be people like us, right? So they can probably look at them and say, they don't look like us even. You know, what are these people, right? Because they are more Denisovan, right? They've got Denisovans there. They've got, <laughs> they've got all these groups that have fled the climate disaster, including other modern humans that have fled the climate disaster. And they're now all bunched together in northern Oceania and on islands Southeast Asia, right? So right. we've got the language information, we've got the DNA information, we've got the environmental information telling us what is happening there. So, in, okay, taking a step back and sure. thinking about all of this information that people are discovering and you know they're still uncovering more about all these hominids, um, do you think that we're just a giant lab for a panspermia event. Uh, in, in a way, yes, I'd say so. Yes, and I think that I suspect that this planet was initially seeded with DNA. You know, my my view of DNA is it it sure as heck resembles biotech. You know, that so if someone is of an assist, sufficiently advanced technology, then that you know this is a kind of a magical technology. We know that you know. Technologies of that level, you know, someone who's a million years ahead of us, it would look like magical stuff. Like DNA is pretty magical stuff. We've got this complex molecule with a complex code that's all come together somehow. Nobody knows how, you know, we're still, you know, shooting in the dark there for a solution for how abiogenesis could have produced um, DNA code and life from geology and biology. Uh, also in the time scale, because if you look at the when the last universal common ancestor, so the first organism on Earth, when it should have been kind of taking root, uh, its earliest dates given are just 100 million years after the planet formed. So in other words, just as it becomes livable, life emerges, like there's a seed waiting for the soil to be right, not like uh, vast periods allowing chance events for chemistry to change and eventually give rise to this complex molecule. It's happening It's happening way too fast by the very projections of the people who suspect you know abiogenesis might be the answer that's really really fast for that kind of complexity to emerge and even then we don't know if it can emerge in that way quite frankly but even if you're, you'd normally expect to allow a vast vast period of time for this kind of 
strangeness to occur. I don't know if it can occur if that. I'm very skeptical. But if you have this emergence very quickly, that would tend to fit with panspermia. We know that the building blocks for life are found out in space. We found all of the, the basic building blocks on comets and meteorites. So there is every chance that life, if it can take root from abiogenesis, would have occurred somewhere else on an older planet before us. And that's, you know, most astronomers and astrophysicists, people accept the idea that there should be older life out there. If there's older life and it came from similar building blocks, why wouldn't it have biotech that was based around the same building blocks as itself, right? And why wouldn't it utilize that to seed new worlds? You know, you start to look at that and think, well, if you can do it, it's an awfully useful technology that you can just spray down, you know, some single-celled life forms, DNA-based, and that they will create a biosphere on any potentially habitable planet, and they will adapt themselves to that planet and give it a biosphere that, that is then useful to you. And that's what I suspect has happened. Again, no one can prove whether it's abiogenesis, panspermia, or directed panspermia, uh, but personally, I think the evidence at the moment leans better towards directed panspermia. And that would mean that we were kind of a lab, like a garden is the other way I'd yeah, refer yeah. to it. Like we were a garden and that we get pruned and we get hybridized and we get, you know, um, monitored, you know, in the same way that a, a garden is today by a human being. That something like that is happening and that we see that change. And very quick, I'll let you jump back in. I'll just say very quickly as well, if you think about it, for a long time, Homo erectus seems to be about the only hominin, or certainly the dominant hominin for a million years or so, and not doing very much. And then suddenly at around about 800,000 years, we have all of these different populations start splitting off. So we now have probably a dozen large-brained hominins that have started to emerge. What the hell has happened that turns that one super archaic race, right, into loads of them? I mean, it just Again, we're saying, is it like a lab? Well, that's what would happen in experimentation in a lab, right? If you're trying to get new hominins and you want to get to an ideal form, one way to do that is to, is to breed multiple types and then let them range out and interbreed and deal with the environment and, you know, come back together, separate off, you know, change, learn. And then when they finally are forced back together by disastrous events, they interbreed and all of those qualities and traits are shared into one final hybrid form, us. I think they might be a little disappointed in their experiment, unfortunately, because we haven't done like the best, but, you know, maybe arguably not. I do sometimes feel like, um, we're following a path um, that was set for us. I think it's unusual that we're a species that wants to go into space. Um, mm. I don't think we act like the other creatures on our planet at all. Um, mm. So I do think that there's some things that should give us pause. However, I do always want to remind people that we were not the only hominids that that would have happened to. Um, and, you know, it just, it really astounds me i don't like we already just have such a hard time um as people accepting anyone that's different from us right like we we deal with racism constantly we deal with sexism mm -hmm. and so on and so forth imagine other hominids like how people would respond to that they don't respond well to people who have you know disabilities or anything visibly different now yeah. how like i think people need to wrap their brain around this like that other hominids could still be ex in existence now mm -hmm. um so actually that kind of leads to the ultra terrestrial hypothesis too that all yeah. these um sightings that people are seeing the ufos and so forth could be from another hominid that's been here for a long time 
maybe part of an experiment. Maybe they're following that DNA map a little faster than we are. Um, we don't know. Um, yeah, no, so <laughs> I find that interesting because I, I wonder sometimes what would we be more uncomfortable with? You know, the confirmation of an alien race interacting with our planet from beyond or the confirmation of another hominin that lives alongside us, say, you know, a surviving population of Denisovans or, you know, some Neanderthals and a, a forest somewhere. How would we view them? Would we view them as humans or as just they're an interesting ape that we'd want to put in the zoo or as, you know, possible breeding partners or, you know, as what or as, you know, collaborators? Because I think there's probably for a lot of people, it'd be a more uncomfortable and troubling to deal with another type of human on our planet than for space aliens that you can categorize right. easily as the other, right? Because you can say, okay, well, they are the other, they're from somewhere else. But what do we do with another human that's not quite like us and it shares this planet? I mean, how would we view that? I mean, I don't know what because you think, but I, I think that might trouble a lot of people. It does, I think. Um, when you talk to people who have said that they've seen a non-human intelligence, be it a little one, um, a big one, like, you know, Bigfoot, be it a gray, there's always fear. People are afraid. Almost never is someone just like, oh, that's cool. Hey, bro. <laughs> you know, they're always mm -hmm. terrified. It's such a shock, you know, and that's why I think we need people to be a little more open-minded because I think at some point this other group or multiple other groups is going to talk to us and be pretty clear and people need to be ready. So, um, Mm -hmm. I think that there's potential that they're already trying and we're just not very good at listening. <laughs> Definitely. I, I think that's the case. I think we, we probably have you know more than one non-human intelligence trying to contact us, you know, and that those could be very different types. You know, like I say, we could have a crypto terrestrial hominin cousin that lives here and that has made some attempts to what has even made attempts to communicate us or has ended up incidentally interacting with people. And then we seem to have, you know, physical non-humans, probably extraterrestrial that have interacted with people. And then also what seems to be you know, non-physical, you know, I guess kind of extended consciousness contacts where we can't really deduce whether they're from a physical or non-physical intelligence, but that they, present themselves in a way where they may not be physical so i think that you know we, may, we could call those spirits you know spirit beings or whatever you want to call those but there, there seems to be probably at least three categories of non-human intelligence that a people are interacting with now i'm not limiting it to three i just think that that would be the minimum if we were going to tackle the evidence that we see the contacts you know the, the anecdotes mm -hmm. plus what evidence exists they would seem to indicate at least three types Right. And then if AI gets involved, that's a whole nother can of worms mm -hmm. because we know our AI can create amazing things. AI can create, you know, effects um, like holograms and so on. We use that now. Um, AI can mm -hmm. control drones. Um, people do light shows in other countries with drones. Um, mm -hmm. So if AI is involved in whatever this intelligence is, we're at a whole nother level, a whole nother ball game. Mm -hmm. And I don't think if anything exists on other planets that they would be behind the ball game, so to speak, they would know about AI too, of course, at some point. I think that just happens. And it, yeah. okay, so I just have to comment. 
I kind of like the Big Bang Theory. Um, I'm not sure that it's the correct answer for how everything started because I have more questions like, okay, what would have started that? Like what's around that? What's around the universe? Like I have some holes in it that I feel like I need to have solved. But if the Big Bang Theory is correct, everything would have started at one origin point together. Everything would have been one little ball, so to speak. And then slowly started to, well, some people would argue not so slowly, but started to spread apart. So mm. let's say 13 billion years ago, the Earth might have been sitting right next to another planet with another um, set of life forming or whatever. <laughs> like things might have gotten a little mishmashed, so to speak. You know, I just, I think we limit ourselves too much when we don't consider the possibilities and we get too caught up in, oh, it's just humans. We're the best. We're awesome. Mm -hmm. It was only us. Like, it was not only us. It was never only us. No, I mean, I tend to the view that uh, however the universe began, I believe or strongly convinced that consciousness was in it, right? So in some primeval form, however we want to look at it, consciousness existed from that moment. Now, it may not have been in a body that we understand, but it was in that fabric of the universe that was expanding, assuming that expansion theory is correct, which it seems to be. Um, so then that consciousness, when forms allowed it to take form, it took form. That's the way I view it. So say with abiogenesis, to me, that is consciousness inhabiting suitable forms that emerged. Now, whether those forms emerged by slow you know, geological chemical processes or whether that consciousness was somehow able to psychically interact with matter and make bodies or, you know, we don't know, right? We don't know the answer to that. But somehow consciousness entered into physicality and it took form. That, that's all we know for sure, because here we are. And if anyone made us, here they are and so on. So somebody has to have emerged from the fabric of the universe and they had awareness and perception and mind and eventually, you know, if they well, made us, then it led to us, or we emerged. Either way, we know that that has to have happened. We know what's come up with a way to explain consciousness from simply material matters, you know, kind of theories. So let's say that we look at, you know, this idea of the spectrum, the EM spectrum for a minute, okay? And I, I would really appreciate someone who's studying consciousness to give me more insight about this, but... Um, as we know, with the EM spectrum, you know, sound can become light and, you know, there's a huge spectrum of waves yeah. that are constantly moving. They don't really stop, really. They, they may even break up and spread out further. Um, they might go around something, so to speak, like a sound wave. Um, mm. So if consciousness is stemming from a wave, that could have actually resulted in matter. Um, which is kind of a scary thing for people to realize. But I have heard that on the sun, matter is formed in like near the gamma range of the wave spectrum. So now we're playing with the wave spectrum, which is scary to me. We're doing it for the sake of quantum computing. Um, so people are already looking at how can I go from this end of the spectrum to this end of the spectrum? And it's only a matter of time, haha, <laughs> matter, that we use the wave spectrum to create matter. Yeah, no, it's, um, 
you know, as you said, we, were in a, we, we basically deal with a tiny part of this spectrum. You know, that's what we understand and what we do and what we, we live in, you know, but we don't really have a normal perceptual awareness of everything else in that enormous vast spectrum. You know, through some of our technologies, we can appreciate the existence of, you know, these, these other sort of invisible and intangible elements to the spectrum we don't know what's in them and we don't know you know whether or not there's other forms of intelligence in them or you know what some of them do or you know the functions in the universe i mean some of this is, is still for us we're very early in fathoming out you know where we are what we can see what else is out there what's alongside us and um as someone said you know really we're functionally blind as an organism yes. because the, the, the tiny narrow bit of the spectrum you know that we can hear see smell take is just minuscule and like you know anything that's that's in that rest of that spectrum is invisible to us but it doesn't mean it's not real and and that should kind of really make people i don't know if you have a creepy feeling but you certainly have a, an uncanny feeling that maybe there's things watching from the gloom you know beyond your vision that um that that yeah, I, I think we should be, certainly be wary with some of our sciences as we start to um, meddle in in this. Exactly. And in terms of obviously with, with quantum, you know, reality, that maybe that we are stemming from some kind of vibrations and one of the quantum field, and you know that there's these kind of ideas where we're also rushing into quantum computing. We we don't know whether we're kind of. I know it's been suggested, isn't it, by one of these quantum computer guys that we are kind of tapping into alternate realities and that maybe even going to be channeling beings into our computer systems and, you know, really, really weird kind of possibilities that, you know, we're, we're such an infancy in understanding some of this science that, yeah, we really don't know what kind of Pandora's boxes we're opening, you know. And I do like to remind people a hundred years ago, people were just like at that time putting light bulbs in their houses. And that was just a hundred years ago. Like people, like the things that we take for granted now, like electricity and computers and, you know, walking around with a mini computer in our hand, that was not a thing. I mean, I think I appreciate that a little more because I'm a child of the eighties. So I had the computer that was huge and had a blue screen and no pictures, you know? So mm -hmm. I saw that change. And I saw how quickly all of this has changed. And the things that we talked about as sci-fi are slowly coming to pass and being taken for granted. But mm -hmm. are we ready for all that? Like people who worked on the Manhattan Project regretted what they did. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think we were ready for going nuclear. Um, I, you know, I think we, like you said, are in our infancy and we're starting to meddle with things that could have an impact elsewhere. Like when we set off those bombs, you know, people who are experiencers say um, other species were pretty alarmed because we were affecting the whole universe. Mm -hmm. And who knows how we did so? Because like I said, our range of vision alone is so limited. Who knows what is still um, around our planet as a result of that? I yeah, do I mean, know I, one I, thing. I do know there's mm -hmm. still radiation in the area. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we didn't know really what we were doing with any of that. I mean, it's, sometimes I've pondered over the years, you know, as well, like, you know, it's, it's a funny question, but, you know, does the mantis shrimp see aliens? And <laughs> I tell you, that if you look at the mantis shrimp, it has these really, like, the most complex visual system in the animal world. 
And so you can see, you know, into kind of infrared and, you know, all sorts of really weird spectrums where we just don't see anything. But why it has that, you know, obviously there's some reasoning, but, you know, you wonder you know, what does it see? You know, because we don't, there's a lot we're not seeing. You know, what does the mantis shrimp see? Does the mantis shrimp see, you know, these sort of incorporeal beings, you know, drifting through the ocean in front of it that, you know, we can't detect? And, you know, who knows what's out there that we just cannot detect? Sorry? Some people do, though. There's some interesting aspects yes. to that. Yes, that's true. That there's variance in our population. That we, it's not everyone seeing the same thing. So mm -hmm. some of us do see more than others. Um, both in terms of uh, physically seeing, say, more stars. You know, the people with a visual acuity that is more profound on average, and it's typically the, people, the indigenous people of Australia, that they have a better acuity of seeing, say, stars in the sky. You can see a lot more stars than you and I can, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then there's other people, of course, that can see energy fields around things. That, or there's people that can psychically detect the presence of beings that other people can't see now people can say i don't believe that, and that that's fine but there's enough anecdotal reports even if you don't go to the experimentation stuff to suggest that people are having psychical impressions so we have all this variance within our population as well um, well, very I, think... say, computer thing, I remember my my first computer well, my dad's first computer was a zx81 the spectrum zx81 which had 1k of memory and you could get a 16k expansion pack and so when people think about that as um what your phone can do today i just remember playing bat and ball on this 16k expansion kit you know it's it's wild for what we have today compared to that right and i also want to say this goes to our ego again right what we call psychic and what we you know say is woo and out there animals on our planet have just taken for granted as being part of their lives like i can't well, I mean, I think I might a little bit be able to, but I can't detect the, you know, magnetic poles <laughs> like the animals on our planet do mm -hmm. to migrate, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, is that psychic of them or is it just an innate part of their existence that they're accepting and that we resist? Um, mm -hmm. I think that there's, there's gifts that some people are still um, using and it's unfortunate that the rest of society treats it like it's a bizarre thing. Like I, I argue the term paranormal sometimes. I think we should just call it normal. It's part of the human experience. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I want to point out, of course, that there's some physical evidence now of some of this because Gary Nolan and some other scientists are really looking at um, the part of the brain called the caudate patanin, right? Um, mm -hmm. And the basal ganglia and saying that there's an indication that those people are more intuitive when they have yeah, that I mean, extra bit of mass yeah this uh the yeah you know, the basal ganglion anomalies these like enlarged basal ganglions i mean it's fascinating they're probably not on their own probably the full story but they definitely point to a proportion of the population that have you know a, a structural differences in the brain which are being associated with um you know intellectual capabilities or intuitive capabilities so i mean there seems to be at least a tentative link already forming now as they continue to explore brain structures and i think with the genome as well you know i imagine we're going to start getting a profile emerging of seeing a number of brain structures and a number of genes that are different in some people and that are associated with enhanced capabilities of either cognition intuition um, and perhaps other characteristics. 
some of this, I think we're going to, again, this is my suspicion, we're going to see a lot of links with neurodiversity and the neurodiverse community. Um, because if you look, I mean, look at some of the capabilities that people that typically considered kind of high on the spectrum have, um, you know, the, the genius savants. I mean, just look, there's, there's people who can, you know, they can glance at a city from the helicopter, go home and draw that city to an accuracy of, you know, the right number of bricks in the tower blocks, you know, um, just extraordinary. And of course, others that there was a guy, there was, here's, a, here's one people to ponder. Um, if you ask the question, say, you know, if you were to take a chessboard and you put a grain of rice on the first square and then each following square, you double the number of grains. Like how many grains of rice do you end up with by the end, right, of the final square? Now, they asked this to one of these genius savants, and he basically instantaneously, well, in seconds, had answered this. And sometimes it doesn't sound too difficult, but the number is actually higher than the total number of atoms in our star. It, so it ends up, it's an enormous number. You wouldn't think of it. It turns out it's an enormous number. And this guy almost almost instantly answered that. And that is an enormously complex calculation. So you have these people, these, these leaps, which don't seem to be calculations in the way we understand brain calculations, right? But they seem to be intuitive leaps. Uh, the same as if you can calculate pi to, was it a 10,000 uh, decimals or something like that? There's a guy who can, right, just, you know, two, five, seven, eight, nine, eight, two, and he just carries on, right? He, how is he doing that, right? Yep. Where's that coming from? So these abilities in um, genius savants, they really do leap beyond simply saying that these are very clever people with different brains. I think that at some point we've got to move beyond that idea because they are somehow pulling information out from the fabric of reality because there's no way they're calculating. You know, like this guy, I think he came up with all the names and numbers in the phone book or, you know, in a whole mm -hmm. state or something. It's really bizarre stuff that you can't see how the brain is doing this in the way that we understand brain processing, right? That there's something yes. else happening. So I and think we're going to see. Yes. And it's, you know, we, we, we see we're already changing our brains with epigenetics. There's some um, changes with our lifestyle that change our brains and things like that with just how we live. So we're doing some things to ourselves, but there may be some external factors and some experiencers have said that after their encounters, um, they have been changed and that they like they get hit with like an EM spectrum wave of some kinds, like be it gamma or whatever, and they're changed. So do you think that um, if this is a lab, our uh, scientists that are looking at us might be trying some new methods now to experiment with us? Yeah, I mean, one of the ways it could be done, I think it may have been done, is that you can rain down, say, a retrovirus from the upper atmosphere, bring new information into organisms. So, you know, anytime you want to add new information into the system, you know, you really you want to add something new to DNA. Uh, one of those ways is to, yeah, is to, to bring it in through kind of, um, you know, infection. You can have something that's carrying information in. Obviously, you can do lab things and splicing and genome editing. But I think if you're trying to do a broader approach, you know, something in the environment makes sense. There's something that would allow a transfer of new information. Now, could that be done in other ways? Could it potentially be done in some kind of, you know, energy field that transfers information in? You know, maybe I've seen this idea that was it, I think they, was it shot a laser through DNA to a frog or something and 
got information from DNA from one animal to another animal who for some kind of light wave and it changed the the um, formation of the embryo, right? Something like I can't remember exactly this experiment was done, but it was suggestive of the idea that you could transfer information in a kind of a, a focused ray rather than actually splicing in the information physically. Now, if that's genuine, then, you know, you know, could you have, say, an energy or even like solar energy or something that is bringing in information in a way that we don't yet understand that is adding new information to the system? And, you know, any new information gives us new characteristics. We also know that um, information is, is jumped between species. We have in us fungi information. We have in us insect information. We have in us, you know, viral DNA and bacteria information. So we are a conglomerate of all kinds of information from different forms of life as well as, right? Now, some of that may have been not accidental. That may be deliberate mixing around of material, or it may be accidental. Either way, that changes us. Anytime information moves around. So we seem to be in a system where you know, we do get changed by new information entering our form. And I think if that is some of it guided, which you know, seems quite likely, uh, that that can be ongoing. And it probably is always ongoing. Right. In, in maybe multiple different ways, maybe, you know, with the infections, with light beams, with you know other things happening that we don't yet understand uh, and that all of these things come together to keep the experiment moving forward. Right. Combined with things like, you know, deliberate cataclysms that contract populations or forced, you know, things that force people to move around or breed in different ways or encourage people to mix in different ways. And one of the things that was strange with them, um, with what Dr. Nolan was looking at, was that it seemed unlikely that the pairings necessary for these brain changes would happen just by chance because there was there was too many occurrences oh. of two you know two parents who would be carrying this kind of different trait mm -hmm. coming together and having children if it was based solely on chance alone so it seemed in some way they were being attracted to each other or nudged towards each other so right. that as well is interesting when we look at, say, phenomena of synchronicities and telepathy, you know, other factors that we don't usually count. What's bringing these people together? You know, could they be subtly nudged by something external that, you know, you need to go out to the park now? And you're like, I feel like I need to go to the park now. You know, and you go, oh, that's a lady. Oh, she seems really nice. I might talk to her. Yes, you should talk to her. You know, right. we, we don't really know if that sort of stuff's not happening to us. And scientists try to let the public know that we are influenced by things that we just take for granted. Like, you literally are sometimes what you eat. Like, the bacteria in your stomach can impact your mood, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and when we meet right. a, a mate, we are sometimes responding to pheromones, which is essentially a scent that we can't mm -hmm. actually normally detect. So mm -hmm. they could have a pheromone that they're emitting to another partner um, and that they're not aware of that makes them go, oh, yeah, that person. Right. So there's there's so many subtle things, but um, not to switch gears too quickly. But I do want to address the fact that with AI coming in, we are going to be leaping forward on some of the things that we're interested in. Um, they're already working on interfaces, you know, that we communicate with our brain uh, using brain waves, et cetera, technology, and the AI translates it to another person's brain, right? And then of course, mm -hmm. you know, there's the Neuralink technology and other competitors working on just straight up putting AI straight into our brain. Um, so 
do you think that is that's a that's another distinctive thing about us no other species on this planet is trying to work with ai but we are right so do you think that is a coincidence or do you think that is the ultimate path that we're going on that, that we're going to sort of merge with ai or just really truly take advantage of ai yeah i mean i i do wonder if you know if the beginnings of our species um, are rooted in biotech and probably biotech designed at least in partnership with artificial intelligence on a super intelligent scale you know because we can we can hypothesize of moon-sized silica networks you know super brains that can think in ways that would to us would be like godlike calculation powers now even if they're not even self-aware but they're just their their ability to calculate and answer questions just unbelievable you imagine a moon-sized silica brain right so so if an alien race uses something like that even if there is a biological alien race so if they design their dna structure from that you know they're the seen technologies would there be somewhere in that code the idea that you know going back to this garden idea if if we are being kind of cultivated up to a certain flowering would that flowering in some way mirror our origin in that it would be that you said the return to space this drive to go to space and to make ai now is that because we are a seed that has come from space and from ai and it's part of the biotech it's it's encoded into us that our flowering will involve that urge to now we will seed now we are become you know the next spacefaring ai using um you know alien race wandering the galaxy i mean that certainly appeals to me in a way, not saying that I think it should be, but it appeals in terms of the evidence that I've seen that that may be why we have this strange impetus is because it's somehow inherent to the code of life that at some point, you know, that they because that's their origin, it's going to be reflected in the code and in the structure of life that they've created. Right. So and that's what I suspect is why we have that strange urge. Lou Elizondo said something like that, you know, he said, if you were going to leave a monument on a planet, what would be the best way to do it? And as you said earlier, it's a possibility that DNA was left on our planet, right? And if this mm -hmm. eventually results in us going into space and traveling with AI helping us, it sounds an awful lot like what we've been dealing with these UFOs, right? So it's, it's just, to me, I just, I have to say, it's an awfully strange coincidence that in a, about a hundred years time, we've started to mirror the UFOs that we've been talking about um, for thousands of years. I would, people say 75 years, but the thousands of years we've been talking about them and we're mirroring their technology and we're getting cl closer and closer to doing mm. what they do. Um, yeah. We already have patents, you know, people argued about the, um, patents from the Navy that sounds like technology an alien would come up with. And those, those were not the first patents, you know, those were just the m most recent evolution of them. And then mm -hmm. this whole AI uh, interface from brain to brain and, you know, DARPA and a whole bunch of other uh, universities have been working on just moving objects with our mind using our brain waves. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had that game where you do it, you know, like where you lift the ball up with your brain waves, you know. So I, I think it's so interesting that what we're doing is mirroring 
what we're looking at with these UFOs. And I, I don't for a second think that like they're all aliens or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that some mm -hmm. of that technology is already ours, um, right. especially mm -hmm. that some of the triangles. I'm highly suspicious of those triangles. So um, I saw today a photo of what humans are supposed to be looking like in the future. And I just thought you, you shaved the hair off this person. They look like a gray. And that was weird to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's worth saying just a comment. It does bother me that if this species that is uh, controlling the grays or creating bio grays keeps mm -hmm. doing it, it indicates to me that they are not the smartest <laughs> because mm -hmm. those grays freak people out. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> but yeah. you know, that's just like because people say they're bio robots. So, and we make bio robots too now. It's worth noting that also we make bio robots. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, thus, thus we become like the gods, and it? it's, it's got to that point where we're almost there. Like, I tell you, our technologies are replicating what the anecdotal claims are telling us about these different visitors that you know also if you look at um, stories of interactions with craft it's very common to hear that these craft are alive and that the craft also they are seamless you know people are looking for the seams you know the nuts and bolts which is an ironic thing in the topic the nuts and bolts because when people have encounters they don't see nuts and bolts see <laughs> one of the things that's glaringly missing that in actuality it would seem that assuming some of these are physical and real and all the rest of it if we take that assumption um, that they are either 3D printed, a technology we are, again, doing, right? Or that they are grown, that they are biotech, and that these are living organic craft, in a sense, that they are, they seem to be self-aware. In some cases, people even saying they were squishy and hot to the touch, like it was a living, you know, an organism made of, you know, organic flesh-like materials, and that it could, was thinking to them, telepathically connecting with them, particularly in the inner chamber, the control chamber, when people enter this central chamber, they feel this intense sense of presence and being monitored by the ship itself. Um, and th these are recurring accounts across many different, you know, abduction or, or encounter visitation encounters. Um, right. You rarely hear of, I don't know about you, but I don't think I can think of any case where someone clearly said there was joins and rivets and screws. And that, I don't think that's coming up in those accounts. You know, yeah, these yeah, very simple environment with light coming from the wall. The tables are not even like our tables. They're attached to the ground. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that the skin of the craft uh, seems alive. That seems to be what most people have said. Now, that could explain also some of the movements of the craft. If it, like people say, they look like sea creatures in the sky sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the more bizarre shapes. So I don't, oh, and the transmedium abilities, of course. Uh, so I don't know. I think we're going to have to figure it out. But one thing that does frighten me a little, and not much of this usually does, but I have heard that, of course, the engine for the craft is or I should say the pilot of the craft is going to have to somehow connect, you know, with their consciousness. So the idea that we might be used as like batteries for their craft for seafaring and be trapped 
having to pilot for them kind of freaks me out a little bit. Like I would do it voluntarily once in a while, but I don't want to do that for like a long time. <laughs> so I don't know. It's just, that is one thing that I've thought of, but man, we have so many things to figure out and uncover. Um, yeah. And I hope, do you get the sense that we'll find out soon or sooner rather than later that the, the, singularity might be upon us soon or the the epiphany might be reachable soon um i certainly think that there is a hurry by you know many parties to bring about a merger you know of of the kind of brain technology interface as you already touched on but there are some big questions over um at what point you know do you does that that next chip embedded in your brain mean that you are no longer you you know, so these are kind of born into philosophical questions. Because if what you're trying to do is merge yourself or extend your life in some way, you know, you probably don't want to do something which seems to bring an end to you and transform you into not you, right? So I don't think we're very near to solving that conundrum. I think that we can probably do all sorts of technological wonders, but I suspect that nobody has really got to a point where they can see how you can do this, but retain the true self-identity of you right because you are going to do something that turns you into basically a robotic version of you or something that will end you and make a copy that's uploaded but it's not you it's a copy of your most common mannerisms and thought processes and you know memories and i, I i'm really skeptical now i'm not saying it's impossible i don't think we're anywhere near that I think maybe an alien race that's had a million years on us, maybe, maybe it figured these things out. I think we're perhaps got some hubris there and thinking that in the next 50 years or something that we're going to successfully uh, merge with technology or be able to upload ourselves in some meaningful way where it really is us continuing. Mm -hmm. I, I expect that the people who believe that have gone a little bit mad um, and that just really believe that that is easy to achieve now with the technologies we have. I don't think it is. I think we've got some big problems to solve in that area if we really want to go down that route. If we want to, should be a conversation. Do we want to? But I, I have know. so many things to say to this, though. One, our idea of individualism and all that is not shared by every culture, right? So other no. countries may jump on it right away. They're like, oh, I just want to be part of this. Another thing is try taking a cell phone from a teenager. Like they're already emerged with their technology. Yeah, they are. Yeah. So like yeah. like they're they're we're already training our children to connect with technology. Like in mm -hmm. fact, um, they've already done human trials for the, one of the competitors of Neuralink. Has already put um, one of those wiry things in someone's head. And actually, I hate to yeah. say this to you know people who are might be Tesla whatever people fans musk mm -hmm. fans but it looked like a better design than what he had come up with because it didn't involve like a wire coming down and all that stuff that he was right. trying to work with um mm -hmm. it was just a simple coil that goes into the brain so mm -hmm. people are already like i years ago i saw a man who was putting a chip in his arm so he could open doors so mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. are going to jump on it and yeah. they're going to they're basically not going to see the moral crisis that you brought up so i think we're on that path um you know so i hate to say this but this touches on that whole future human hypothesis that we might be creating you know for ourselves the thing that we're intrigued by 
So. Mm -hmm. And I think, like you say, people will be drawn to it. I mean, there's no doubt. It's not a thing that we can all say, oh, it scares us all and we won't do it. Because a lot of people are enthusiastic about the idea of merging with technology or being uploaded or becoming immortal in some way, right? So there is an appeal to a lot of people. Um, so it's, I guess it's more a question of how fast can we get those capabilities? Or the wild card, you know, that a, a non-human intelligence likes the idea of us doing this for its own reasons, maybe some AI, and says, well, you know, you do it like this. You know, up to the cloud you go. And, and one of the, this is, if you want a sort of a scary scenario, um, there is the, the hypothesis that probably many advanced civilizations, you know, move move towards a post-biological framework where they, they do utilize more and more AI, more and more cybernetics and robotics. And eventually, either they completely give way to their creations or they some way merge and upload and become those cold machines you know and that that's all that's left of biological civilizations in the cosmos that what we will find is almost exclusively non-biological silica life throughout the cosmos right. if that's the case what if one of these civilizations decides we don't like this anymore we want to return to biology now they might go out looking for or create a garden of forms that are suitable for download but first, they would need those forms to help build the connectivity necessary to reintegrate themselves and enter into those vessels. Now, is that what we're building? Are we building the download structure for something that's hovering, you know, just behind the moon? Uh, you know, some cube full of consciousness that is ready to download into eight billion new vessels. I mean, well, those are the kind of crazy <laughs> scenarios that could be possible and that you know, i think not we're already done that i really do i think that's where the story of the soul is i think if people explore the idea of spirit and soul we've already downloaded so whether or not an, an entity uh contributed to that and maybe that's what god is right the entity that had us mm -hmm. download but i would argue that we are essentially already biological robots that we already have downloaded our personalities our souls who we are and actually it's more complicated than people even realize because you know you find if someone's brain is damaged who they are changes a little bit and it sounds mm -hmm. like there might be a left brain right brain personality that converges mm -hmm. to be who we are so mm -hmm. my argument is i think we've already done that i think that's what the soul is about i think that's why we have consciousness there's no I'm not saying that there's not more than one of us already in here, though. They might have had to cram a couple or whatever. But, it, you know, God is the ultimate extraterrestrial and supposedly gave us the soul and all that. So a lot to think about with that one. But, Bruce, you've been amazing today. You've um, given me food for thought. I hope that you enjoyed your conversation here. I'd really like you to let people know where they can find you and a little bit um, mm -hmm. about, you know, how they can find your work if they want to go look into it. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I've had a nice chat and it's we've, we've far ranging, you know, we've gone across a few topics. So hopefully, hopefully there's something for everyone, you know? Um, yeah. If anyone's interested, then I would suggest they could look at my Substack as you mentioned earlier. So brucefenton.substack.com, I believe I should take them there. Um, I'm currently writing, you know, about the Tektite series, the genetic engineering, you know, all of those topics I find on there. Uh, it's 
mostly free older archive stuff you know if you join as a paid sub you can uh, get, you know see all the archives and the additional um some additional podcast stuff there for paid subs uh also the books i've got the uh, exodus book is obviously on amazon so is my previous book forgotten exodus the inter-africa theory that's got forward by Graham Hancock, Exogenesis got forward by Eric Von Daniken. I'm really stoked about that because both of those are the ideal people for the respective topics, really, ancient mysteries or aliens. I couldn't think of a two people that are more known for those topics. And otherwise, on social media, you know, if they have something to ask me, Twitter's probably the place to jump on and find me. Uh, I don't use Facebook a lot. I do have a page, but I'd say, yeah, you'd probably find me easier on there. And if there's a really an important thing to contact me about uh, then you can email me at bruce at brucefenton.info so if it's relevant to you know something important otherwise social media is probably the best place to ask a question okay thank you yes and thank you so much again for coming today you were amazing i really hope people will go take a look at your books and your work um and again please just keep doing what you're doing you're the next darwin apparently so <laughs> we need your work <laughs> thank you very and much this i appreciate Thank you. And um, this is Deb from Deb's Dad and Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. If you need me, I'm at Study of UAPs. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm also with the UFOConnector.com and with the UAP Medical Coalition. And you could find me on Calling All Beings on YouTube. Take care, everybody.